chapter 18 in the book of Revelation. Before we go there, I want to read an Old Testament passage to you. And basically what I'm hoping we'll get from this is to understand some things. And one of those is it's always been God's intention for us to have a king. The reason I bring this up this morning is we're studying the kings of the earth. Remember the the ten heads and the seven horns and, you know, or is it seven heads and ten horns? I don't remember. (laughs) Uh, but, you know, we, we know that all of those, because the scriptures tell us here, that those things represent kings and kingdoms. Uh, and we know this. We know that people need to have authority over them. They need to have a ruler over them. We know that ultimately that we're talking about King Jesus, right? But very often God has used people through the generations, not only as kings and in, 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 in countries as kingdoms, but, but also there have been queens, there have been other leaders. And what, we need to understand that this applies to some degree to every leader in every position, regardless of how great and grand it is or how low or seemingly unimportant people may think those leadership positions to be. And we know this, we know that the pattern, we know that the, the, the Jesus shows us this very clearly, and that is that the sign of a true leader is that they are a servant leader. And see, this is the allegation that has been brought against these kings and kingdoms in the book of Revelation, and that is they have been about doing their own business for their own benefit. Entering in all kinds of immoral practices along with the harlot, the seductress who in a sense has grabbed them by the nose and led them down this path to some degree. But at the same time, we understand that it's the sin within them that drives them. How often have people in leadership roles used those roles to benefit themselves at the expense of the people that they're supposed to be representing and taking care of? And serving. There are so many examples out there in the world today, you couldn't even begin to mention all of them. What I would say to you is that is the typical thing that you see. It's unusual to see a leader lead according to the way that Jesus would have us do it. This world is in need of many things, and one of those is certainly Godly, God-focused leadership. Throw from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17. Instructions to Israel. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will get a set of king over me like the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over Over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen. You shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Neither shall he multiply wise for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. 
Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, in order that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. If we know anything about history... We know that there is only one single king that has ever come close to meeting those things. And he's done it absolutely, and he's done it perfectly. His name is King Jesus. Too often, history attests to the fact that kings and other people in leadership roles have used those positions not for God's intended purpose, but for their own personal gain and their own personal advancement. This is why we really do need to drain the swamp. Because you see it over and over again. All you have to do is watch the news or pick up the newspaper and their daily accounts of exactly what we're talking about here is taking place. So we're in 18, and I'm just going to, we wrapped up in chapter, verse 4 last week, so I'm going to start there. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my, my people, that you may not participate in her sins, and that you may not receive of her plagues, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back, even as she has paid and give back to her double according to her deeds in the cup which she has mixed, and twice as much uh, uh, for her to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously to the same degree, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am not a widow and never will see mourning. For this reason, one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. All of those references are to the harlot, to this seductress, who we understand is made in the image of the evil one, right? There's just really a, just another depiction of him being at the very heart of all of this. We talked last week, we closed with the idea that Jesus continues to call us to come out of this world with every day that passes, to turn away from sin and to live under righteousness, to recognize his kingship, his lordship over our lives, and to live our life accordingly. Her sins have piled up as high as heaven. Can you imagine the magnificent restraint of God? He abhors sin. He cannot tolerate sin at all. But he's been patient. He's restrained himself. He restrained himself in the Garden of Eden. He could have been done with Adam and Eve and their progeny from that point on. 
He chose not to do that. He's been tolerant of man's obstinance and rebellion for all of the history of mankind. He's held himself back. He's reined himself in, desiring with the greatest of passion at any moment to strike out and bring the judgment that is due to all of it. Because he's not only a God of justice and righteousness. He is also a God of love and patience and compassion. Some people believe that the end will never come. But you can't read the Bible and come to that conclusion. You can't re- read the book of Revelation and come to that conclusion that one of these days God is going to say enough is enough. And he's gonna, his patience is going to come to a screeching, swift halt. And judgment is going to be passed. And that judgment has either already been borne by Jesus Christ on the cross or it will be borne by the person. Sins piled up as high as heaven. The interpretation here, none of the interpretations that I've read really express what is going on here. What it really says is this, is that the sins of men have piled up so high that they're pushing on heaven. It's almost as if the whole universe has been filled up with the sin of mankind. So much that it is trying now to push its way into the heavenly places. God has remembered her iniquities and just God is the God of memory. And let me just say you, there's never been one single sin that has gone unnoticed. Not one single sin will not be held to account. For the degree she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. I would imagine that this is probably a true statement, and that is very rarely in the courts of men does the punishment really fit the crime. I mean, our tendency is either going to be to overdo or to underdo. In other words, the punishment not really be equal to the crime that's been committed. Or at other times, the punishment to actually exceed the depth of the crime that was committed. That's what's going to be the tendency of courts in which you have juries or judges making decisions and they're all sinners. In God's courtroom, things are very different. In God's courtroom, the punishment always, always is perfectly equal to the crime that's been committed. Never more, never less. 
His justice is perfect, just as he is perfect in every way. His, per, his justice is absolutely perfect. Now, just remember this. You know, this needs to undergird our understanding of everything when it comes to judgment. And that is this, is that if you indeed know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then the punishment for every sin, every crime that you ever have committed, you are committing, or ever will commit against God has been atoned for. The penalty has been paid absolutely, completely, in totality. Where you are right now, What a relief. If you don't feel some sense of a relief, you've never really thought much about that. I think sometimes people believe that Christianity that, well, let me just tell you, you know this thing that was going on with my heart. My doctor told me eight years ago, he said, Keith, this is like an axe hanging over your head and it could come down at any moment. I think that there are people in churches today who really believe this. That God has a tablet up there in heaven with their name on it. And all the sins they continue to commit, he writes on there. I'm going to remind us this morning that what God did with us is he threw the tablet away. There is no tablet. It's a done deal. It's all over with. It's all been taken care of. The sin has been covered absolutely, completely, totally. Does that give us a license to sin? Does that mean because we've been given grace that, you know, Paul argues about something. Some people are concluding, well, if if being a sinner has brought grace to me, then I just need to get more grace or do more sin so I can get more grace. And Paul basically says, have you lost your blooming mind? (laughs) Not really. (laughs) Why would you ever come to that conclusion? If you come to that conclusion, you don't understand what grace is to start with. Just remember this. This day of judgment is coming. It may come in our day. More than likely, it won't. But it could. It could come today. It could come before we finish this service this morning. It is coming. God has promised us it's going to come. That it will not happen until Jesus returns. Right? And judgment will come forth as a result of that. It is part of the gospel. As we said before, the gospel is really, really good news if you believe it. But if you don't, it's the worst news you can get. Jesus himself, I mean, this book, you can't get away from God's judgment. It's all over Revelation. It's all over other places. They all have had discourse. The very words of well, these are the words of Jesus here. 
Remember, these things are being directly conveyed through an angel to the apostle John in visions. But this is Jesus speaking to John. And then John is speaking forth the word of God to those seven churches in Asia Minor. And then down through the generations to you and I where we're sitting today. These are the very words of Jesus. Again, talking about God's judgment. Coming upon this wicked and evil world created by the sin of mankind. Lori and I watched Pearl Harbor last night, that movie. We watch it every few years. It's just it's hard to conceive of something like that actually happening. And it happens all the time. That people in this world treat each other that way. And there are times when people have no other choice than to defend themselves. It's awful. And anyone that doubts that sin is a real thing in people, you just read history. Because there's a sense in which history is nothing but the record of war. It started in Eden. It's been ever since. Verse 8. The judgment day is coming. It will come. And none of us know when it's going to be. The reason I say it's very well could not be in our time is because our brothers and sisters down through history there have been people in every generation who believed but they would have probably died for the idea that Jesus was coming back in their day and we're 2,000 years later now somebody's going to be eventually right the only thing I'm telling you is believers been wrong in every generation for the last 2,000 years Verse 9 gets into the kings of the earth as we kind of started out this morning. The kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They've allied themselves with her. They put all of their cards in her deck. And by her, what we're talking about is this sinful, wicked, evil, seductive world that penetrates into the very depth of every one of our souls. It's part of us. And and wars and injustices that we see in the world, they are just outpourings of the reality of the fallen human condition. You think that it's an exaggeration to say that the sins of men have mounted all the way up to heaven, piled up to heaven? But 
But Babylon is destroyed at this point. We've seen that phrase used three or four times already in this book, all the way in, back in chapter 14 and several times in 17 and 18, that fallen, fallen is Babylon. And we know that it's not in Babylon the Great's very often called, and we know that's not reference to the Babylon of ancient times. It's a figurative picture of the wicked and evil things, empires and nations and kings and queens and other folks that have descended down through the generations that encompasses all. Remember when the war in Iraq first started? And remember the concept of shock and awe. We watched it on TV. And basically it was the massive bombardment with Iraq that initiated the war and it had a purpose. And the purpose was to evict abject fear in the Iraqi people. To convey to them the idea that, that, that their defeat was imminent, that their victory was an impossibility, that their enemy was so overwhelming, they did not stand a chance. This is what these kings of the earth are looking out upon with real shock. And real awe, the defeat of the harlot, the evil one, the devil, Satan. That they had aligned themselves with because he gave them false promises. He's the liar. They listened. They dedicated themselves to him. By dedicating themselves, first of all, to themselves. As we've said before, what has been the driving factor behind so much of the leadership in this world is this, is what advantage am I going to gain out of it? What am I going to get from it? And certainly one of the most promising things about it is the potential, the possibility of becoming wealthy, of gaining all those things in this world that people so actively desire and, 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 and pursue in all of that. But let me just say this this morning. There's only one thing that makes silver and gold and precious jewels and things like that of value at all. It's just simply because people give value to those things. They're just rocks. They're just crystals. 
Maybe they're rarer than some other things, and that adds to their preciousness. But at the same time, it's ridiculous for even you and I to put a whole lot of stock in a chunk of gold because it's just a chunk of metal that really is worthless. Other than people want it. That's not worthless. I mean, you can use it for things. They're standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment. We've already read one uh, before in verse 15, and we're going to read in 17, that, that these people are standing at a distance, and they're watching this unfold. They're watching Babylon destroyed. And it tells us here why. Because they're in fear. Notice they're not right there in the middle of it. They've distanced themselves a little bit. Which is very often the way you see things happen. People ally with one another as long as things are going great. Everybody's making a lot of money. You know, we're all getting wealthy and so on and so on and so on. The things start going south and then fingers start getting pointed at people and they begin to disassociate with one another. Somehow they believe that distancing themselves here at the very end of time is going to save them. But it won't. It will not. They're amazed. Amazed at a lot of things. But one of those is how swiftly it has come. And it's come. They were totally unexpecting this to happen. And now all of a sudden. In the blink of an eye. The judgment of God has fallen upon. The wickedness and evilness in this world. And they are shocked. And they are awed. This wicked, evil power that thought itself was so grand and so almighty and so able to do this, that, and the other is brought to nothingness in no time at all. In one hour is a short period of time. We're not talking about years. We're not talking about millennia. We're not talking about a million years. In an hour. But the evil one and all of those who bear his mark and all the other fallen angels, the demons, they have spent all of the history of mankind and before that building their own kingdom in defiance of the true kingdom. And God absolutely obliterates it in, in an hour. 
And I don't think we're meant to take an hour literally. What we're understanding here is in a very short period of time, what took so long to build becomes ash. That's how powerful our God is. Are there any threat to him? Have they ever been any threat to him for one single second? The answer is no, 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 no. He's allowed them to do their thing. He's allowed them to exist. And now his judgment has fallen upon them. I guess that they think that somehow by separating themselves at this point, by some distance, that they're going to be saved from it. If you read the rest of Scripture, you can't conclude anything other than the fact that they will pay the piper too. Their time is coming very soon. The time of separating yourself from this stuff is long past. Now we turn to the merchants. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys her cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and and chariots and slaves and human lives and the fruit of you uh, you long for has gone from you and all uh, things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and men will no longer find them. Then we read this, the merchants. First of all, the kings are standing at a distance watching. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment and weeping and warming, mourning. The same thing. Saying, woe, woe, the great city, she who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and jewels. Long lists here of all kinds of goods and commodities. In the Roman Empire, during the years of the Roman Empire, Trade escalated, in particular, around the Mediterranean Sea. And we, we see that the Mediterranean connected, you know, southern Europe and Italy and Rome and, uh, you know, in, in the ancient Near East and Egypt and North Africa and all that. You know, trade was flourishing. All kinds of things became available because of all the, the ship traffic that was taking place on the Mediterranean Sea that was not... So great until the time of the Roman Empire. For a lot of reasons, and one of those is this, is one of the things the Romans did is they almost freed the Mediterranean from pirates. So that commerce could take place freely and actively. 
So all these goods were flowing from here to there. Spain was one of the main exporters of silver and gold. They had silver and gold mines in Spain. And that gold was disseminated in silver all over the Roman Empire. Cotton from Giza, just like the dream sheets things. And, you know, the My Pillows thing going on now. You've seen it on TV. Same cotton flowing forth from Giza in Egypt to, to all these different places. And now, but because most of the common people forever and ever, their, their main thing that their clothing was made of was wool. Now let me ask you something. If you had the choice of, of wearing garments made out of cotton or garments made out of wool, which one would you pick? Now you might pick wool if you're going to be living at the North Pole. But we know that wool is scratchy and itchy and this, that, and the other. Can you imagine having underwear made out of wool? <laughs> so you could understand where people saw this as just a great blessing. You know, now we have this linen, and even, even then silk was flowing even all the way from China by the land routes of trade. We don't think about it so much, but, you know, we, we see all these references to spices and incense and perfume and frankincense and, 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 and citron wood, which has an aromatic odor to it. You know, one of the reasons people sought this stuff so much was there were all kinds of things around them that stunk to high heavens. That the reason that they sought these things was to cover over very bad odors in their homes and in the streets and in the cities. And that sort of thing. One of the most concerning things in all of this is a reference to slaves and human lives. One of the most horrible practices that mankind has ever entered into. Can you imagine anyone believing they have the right to enslave someone else? It was common. They estimated 30 to 40 percent of the people living in, in, in Italy in the first century, 30 to 40% of them were slaves. Now, I've heard recently people saying this, and there's good reason to believe it, that there are more people enslaved in the world today than there ever has been in either any other time in history. There's a list of, uh, of countries that where slavery is legal today. North Korea. Does that surprise anybody? India, China, Russia, the Congo, Pakistan, the Sudan, 
Dominican Republic, not too far away. Yemen, Iraq, Indonesia, the Philippines, Guatemala, where it's actually legal for people to own other people. And very often to become wealthy from it. The slavery that was so prominent in the United States early on was a terrible and awful thing. It never should have happened to anybody. The Civil War was a terrible thing. But it brought an end to it. But there's still people trying to do it. You understand that they're moving slaves, essentially slaves across our southern border. Women sold into bondage, sometimes by their own families. And carrying and being carried here to become nothing but a piece of meat. And very often these are minor girls in their early teens. Can we sit by and do nothing? Seriously, how would you like to be a slave? You know, your list of things, your bucket list? One of the things you want to experience in your lifetime? Being bondage to someone else who has absolute, total control and right over you in every way? Is that one of your desires? You read stuff like this. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Who, who would ever want to be a slave to anybody else? And yet it is part of the history of the world. It's a heart, part of the history, a very prominent part of the history of the sinfulness of the human heart. You and I hear things like this, we see things like that, and it shocks us, it surprises us, but you know what? It really should not. Because if we're not for the grace of God, you and I would be fully capable of doing that sort of thing. And feel justified and okay with it. God's grace is the only cure for sin. Period. 
Nothing else will do. Nothing else can do. For whatever reason, God has given us grace. There's all kinds of ways that this can be lived out too because I know that there are women that sometimes feel like they're slaves to their husbands. And they're basically treated like slaves. I've witnessed a little bit of it in my lifetime. Men who look upon their wife as nothing but their servant. The one, you know, oh, the Bible says she's supposed to be submissive to him, so he's going to push it to the utmost in absolutely every way. He's in charge, and she's supposed to do what she's told to do. Let me tell you, if you really believe that's what big old marriage looks like, you are sadly mistaken. To be a husband to your wife means to serve her. To be a servant leader. And if you do not treat your wife in that, mechan- that manner, you are committing the same kind of thing that these kings are doing. They're using their position to your own perceived advantage. When that's not the reason God gave it to you. It wasn't to make you wealthy, not to make you powerful, not to make you absolute over at least one person. It was to serve that person in a capacity that you would never serve anyone else. To love them unconditionally. To do everything in your power to make life for them as good as it can be. Not to lord it over anybody. And let me tell you, I've seen wives do the same thing to husbands. There's a lady years ago, I was involved in a membership interview, not here, but at another church years ago, and this couple came into the room, and uh, you would have thought the man could not even say a word. Because the way we do membership interviews is we always want to hear from each person. You know, let me, you know... Tell something about yourselves and that sort of thing. This particular inter- interview, the lady talked about herself for probably 30 minutes. We finally had to cut her off. Some guys got up and went to the bathroom hoping that she would be gone when they came back and she was still there. But then it came his turn. And you would have thought he wasn't even in the room. She did all of his talking for him. Not good. Not good at all. There are all kinds of descriptive words you can use for marriage, and one of those that is very important is harmony. Working together with one another, not against each other. Not trying one trying to lord it over the other one.
My wife bring these notes with me every week. I haven't even, I don't ever look at them. <laughs> They're just kind of my crutch, I guess, just in case I get in a panic and I can't think of anything to say. I don't know about you, but I just I feel like God has really spoken to my heart and to my mind and everything through this book of Revelation in a way I hadn't experienced in a very long time. And I'm thankful for it. I'm going to stop there. Let me say one more thing. Here's people talking about the Me Too generation. You know what that means? It means it's all about me. Unfortunately, you see Christians sometimes living their life as if it's all about them. Guys and gals, it's just not. It's about And we just have the blessing of having 